Good morning. It's my privilege to welcome you to Central today, where we seek transformation through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This fall, we've been studying what it means to be made in God's image, and as we will begin our Advent series this week, we're going to continue on that theme with a little bit of variation. We're going to ask the question, what child is this? What does it mean for the Son of God to have taken on flesh and become a human being? Advent, you may know, means coming, and we celebrate as the coming of the Lord, the Word made flesh as a child, and we await His coming again on the last day. But today, we will look at the Word made flesh from John 1. It's been said that the Gospel of John is deep enough for elephants to swim and shallow enough for children to wade. I think it's true. Maybe you've heard John chapter 1 preached before, but I want us to take a few steps into the deeper end of the pool this morning. We're not going to cover everything that's here. We couldn't possibly cover everything that's here, but I want us to examine what does it mean that the God who created this earth entered into this creation to become part of it as a human being so that we would know Him. I want to invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 1, I think it's page 886 on your pew Bible in front of you. And if you have a child sitting with you in the seat, make sure they can see the Bible too. Help lead them as we read the scriptures together. Let's pray as we turn our attention to God's Word. Lord, we ask that you would send your Spirit and open our eyes that we might behold the glory of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we ask it all through the strong name of Jesus. Amen. John chapter 1, hear God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but became to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." This is God's good news of great joy. Glory to God in the highest. Do you know people who are able to hear one line from a movie and can kind of pick it out and begin to quote or at least reference things that happen in that movie? You know people like that? Just one word, one line, and they can start going. For example, depending on your generation, you might connect with these. If I were to say, Luke... I am your father. You all know what movie that comes from. You know which Star Wars movie it comes from. And you can probably tell me a little bit about what's happening in the scene. Or 
If I just say this one word, inconceivable. You all know we go to the Princess Bride and you see the Sicilian and all the rest. Or how about this one? Why is it all wet, Todd? I don't know, Margot. Some of you who were chuckling know that comes from Christmas Vacation. So it depends on which generation you are, so which movie you identify with. But you just hear one little line and the whole scene, the whole movie pops into your mind. John's doing something similar in John 1. In verses 1 to 14, John is dropping one-liners that would bring the minds and the hearts of his readers back to passages in the Old Testament, back to things that powerfully reveal who God is and who this Jesus is who's come into this world, what he's come to do, but it's all allusion to the Old Testament. He's going to reveal for us what it means that That Jesus came and Christmas changes everything. It changes the world. It changes our lives because the word was made flesh. I want us to look at a few of those one-liners this morning that John uses here and to discover that Old Testament background that tells us about Jesus. The first one is at the beginning of the passage where John wrote, in the beginning was the word. Now, If you were a Greek-speaking Jew or you're here and you're familiar with God's Word this morning, there's a scene that pops into your mind when John writes, in the beginning. It's Genesis chapter 1, right? Where the very next words in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But John takes a little bit of a different tack here. He writes, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. It's a startling claim. That Jesus, this man, was there as the word from the beginning. The one who speaked the universe into existence is the very one that we're writing about here. Jesus, God made flesh. John 1 shines a light to open up Genesis 1. That Jesus was there in the beginning. But John says here that this word was God. Now, to be sure, in our popular culture, that's not a commonly afforded Uh, affirmed sentiment. There are lots of people who are willing to say that Jesus was a great moral teacher. He's an example. He's a servant-hearted person. It doesn't matter whether you're on the left or the right. Many people in our culture are willing to affirm that Jesus was a great moral teacher. And the truth is that Jesus is a great moral example. He's the only person ever to live a perfect human life. But what the Bible testifies about Jesus is more than he was an example testifies that Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. And we can't just shrug this off as some assertion of his followers in the decades or centuries after, because in the pages of the scriptures themselves, there are things attributed to God are frequently attributed to Jesus, like verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made. Jesus is the agent of creation. He was there in the beginning to speak into existence everything that is. But not only that, in the Gospel of John alone, we see Jesus claim to be one with the Heavenly Father in John 5. Jesus carries the the activities that the Father does in chapter 8. He speaks with the authority of God the Father in John 10. He even goes so far as to say he shares the glory with God the Father in John chapter 17. It's the testimony of the Bible that says that Jesus is God, and Jesus also demonstrates that he's God and what he does, how he treats people, what he goes about doing in 
his life in the flesh. What we find is Jesus is the same God that was present in Genesis 1. He is the one who made creation, through whom creation was spoken into existence. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King over all. He's God in the flesh. Now, it doesn't really make sense to say that Jesus is a great moral example and teacher if the central claim of his life isn't true. If Jesus' central claim that he is the Son of God, that he's God in the flesh, it doesn't make sense to say, well, you're a great moral teacher, but what you say about your own self isn't true, does it? And C.S. Lewis's famous assessment, Jesus either is who he claimed to be, God in the flesh, the Son of God, or he is a terribly deceitful liar. Or if he's not a deceitful liar, if he's not Lord, then he is a seriously deluded lunatic. One of those has to be true. Either Jesus is who he said he is, or he is a liar, or he's a lunatic. But it makes no sense whatsoever to claim that Jesus is a great moral example if he's a liar, or if he's a lunatic. Do you believe that Jesus is the Lord whom he said he is? He is God in the flesh. He is God who came down into this world. Do you believe in who Jesus claims to be this morning? But what does it mean in verse 14 when it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us? Now, on the one hand, John is merely saying that this preexistent God, Jesus, took on flesh and blood just like we have. He became a human being with a heart and liver and fingers and toes and all the rest. It means that, but it also means many other things. One of them is this. Jesus is God in the flesh. He knows what it is like to live a life like yours. He knows what it is like to live in a world full of beauty and brokenness at the same time. If Jesus is God who took on your flesh, he knows what your life is like from the inside out. He knows how you feel and your experience of this world. Jesus knows what it is like to be hungry and thirsty and weary. He knows what it's like to be completely undone at the loss of a friend or a family member, like maybe some of you are grieving this Christmas. He knows what the grip of dread is like. He knows what it's like to tremble in sweat and fear like he did in the Garden of Eden. You can trust him with all of your concerns, all of your worries, all of your fears, all of your pain. Because Jesus is not some distant God who stands back watching us from a distance. Sorry, Bette Midler, it's a lie. Jesus stepped into this world. God entered into this world, took on flesh to do something about all of our pain and our distress and our sin. God came near for you. But what about the times when we come to God and he doesn't answer? When we ask him to intervene in our lives and he doesn't, how do I make sense of that experience of God? Jesus knows that too. He cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows what it is like to feel abandoned, even by God. As he prayed in the Garden of Eden, if there's any way that these people can be saved without me having to experience all the agony and the pain of your wrath, Father, make it so, let this cup pass from me. But Jesus was turned down. He was told no. 
It's just one of the most encouraging passages in the whole New Testament to me. Maybe it's, it's an upside-down encouragement, but it encourages me all the same to know that Jesus knows what it's like to pray for something and be told no. Not maybe, not well, wait a while and that blessing will come to your life. Jesus knows what it's like for God to say no. He knows what it's like to cry out for things that he knows aren't going to happen. When Jesus prayed, let this cup pass from me, he knew that he was the Savior. He knew that he was going to the cross. That wasn't lost on him. And yet he poured out his heart before his heavenly Father. We can do the same. When you feel alone or misunderstood, or abandoned and afraid, remember that the word became flesh. Jesus understands your life. He understands what it's like to live in this world that's broken down and painful. But not only did he become flesh, verse 14 says, he dwelt among us. And that's another one-liner from John. There are lots of words that John could have chosen to say that God came near. God came to live among us. But what he literally says is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. This is one of those one-liners where John sends our minds and our imaginations back to a part of the Old Testament, in particular here to Exodus 32, 33, and 34 where Moses had been on Mount Sinai, where God gave him the Ten Commandments. And Moses declared, I want to know you, God. I want to see you in intimacy. I want to see your glory. Would you let me see your face? Moses asked. And God said, no, you're not survived that. But here's another option. Let's build a tabernacle, a, a tent that can move around. And that will be the dwelling place for my glory among my people. Here, you can have all the sacrifices. You can come into my presence and I will dwell in the holy of holies behind the veil. My glory must be concealed, but there I will be among you in all my glory. And so when John talks about the word tabernacling and us beholding his glory, the minds of these readers would have gone back to the first time they heard that. Even Moses must be shielded from the glorious presence of God. Surely I can't be in his presence if Moses couldn't, but John here says exactly the opposite. God took on flesh so that we could see his face, so that we could behold his glory. John John says Jesus took on flesh so that we could come near to the very presence of God. In Jesus, God dwelled among his people. In Jesus, God's people were able to look eyeball to eyeball with the living God, face to face with God, beholding all of his glory in the face of Jesus, and they did not have to hide because God took on flesh and became the Lamb of God who has taken away all of our sin. In other words, in the tabernacle where the place where God dwells with us as the place where sacrifices are held, John says, Jesus became that. Jesus became that tabernacle. God in the flesh came to allow himself to be killed, to be sacrificed for us on the cross. Jesus came to pay that price to reconcile us to God in all of his holiness as sinners, and yet we could, through the Lamb of God, we could be in the presence of God because God took on flesh and went to a cross for us. We can have intimacy with God. We can behold his glory. We can see him face to face because we're reconciled 
to God through Jesus. And friends, oh, how deeply we need that. We need it not only for coming into a relationship with God, but we need the living Lamb of God to keep us in relationship with God. It's the gospel that brings us into his kingdom. It's the gospel of what Jesus has done that keeps us in his kingdom of God too. We need to hang on to that gospel because the truth is there are times when we secretly have begun to cherish our sin in our hearts. We love it. We cherish it. We turn it over in our minds and our hearts, do we not? Sometimes we just stew in our anger sinful anger. We cherish it. We, we imagine things. We imagine retribution. We imagine getting back at people. We've begun to cherish that sin in our hearts. Or if it's not that, maybe it's you cherish self-righteousness in your heart. Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like those people out there. Cherishing that sin of self-righteousness. Or so many times we love being right in our own eyes. We so love to point out other people's errors, and, but I'm, I'm the one doing it all right. We cherish those sins in our hearts or our lusts or failing to protect the good name of our neighbor, but we'd rather slander them and run them down. It's, I don't think it's just me, but we all cherish the sin in our hearts, don't we? To some degree, we love it. And yet, God dwells with us. He knows this is true about us and he's not only holy, but he is the lamb of God who takes away our sin. And so we can be in the very presence of this living God, the God who dwells with man, who became flesh so that we sinners by his grace could behold the glory of God that Moses was not allowed to see so that we could have access to the living God. We have seen the face of God in Jesus and we don't have to shrink away in fear because God has been made man and was crucified for us and raised from the dead and now sits on the throne. John keeps going in verse 14. He says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, what John does not mean by grace and truth is that before Jesus came, it was all law, but now that he's here, it's grace. That's not what he's meaning. Remember, he's, he's continuing a quotation of Exodus 34. This is a continuation of that one-liner of taking us back to that passage where God spoke to Moses and said, you can't be in my presence. You can't see my glory. We'll build a tabernacle, but let me tell you what my character is like. In Exodus 34, verses 4 to 6, where it says, The Lord, the Lord is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Remember that passage? Those Hebrew words, steadfast love and faithfulness, occur 85 times in the Old Testament, describing who God is, filled with steadfast love and faithfulness. What you may not know is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint translates those words from Hebrew, steadfast love and faithfulness, what they are is grace and truth. God's describing this scene here where God appeared to Moses and now in the words of the apostle John, it's come to life in technicolor that the same God who took on flesh, the one who's full of grace and truth is standing among you ready to forgive sinners and make his glory visible. 
What John is asking us here is, do you want to know God? Do you want to know what he's like in all of his holiness? Study the life of Jesus. He makes God's holiness. He puts it on display. Do you want to know what the wrath of God is like? Look at the life of Jesus. Do you want to know what the forgiveness of God, the grace of God is like? Look again to Jesus. Do you want to know what a manifestation of the glory of God looks like? The supreme manifestation of the glory of God is seen on the cross where the king of glory allowed himself to be killed, to be sacrificed for sinners like us. You study Jesus who's on the cross and we behold the glory of the living God, one who's full of steadfast love and faithfulness, grace and truth for sinners like you and me. John wants us to realize that Jesus came all the way down into the dirt, into a world like ours to show us his face, to show us what he's truly like. We see him clearly in a God who loves you so much that he was willing to go to a cross for you. That's the glory of God set on display. I'll close with this. In the late 1990s, there was a power forward that transferred to play basketball at UNC Chapel Hill under Dean Smith, the legend coach. And this man's name was Mokhtar Ndaye. And he was from Senegal. He was the very first person to play at University of North Carolina from the African continent. It was one day Mokhtar didn't quite, quite seem himself in practice. So Coach Smith asked him, Mokhtar, are you okay? Are you all right? But Mokhtar wouldn't look at him. He just kept looking at the ground and said, yes, coach, I'm fine. A couple more exchanges like this. Are you okay? I'm fine. Are you okay? I'm all right. And finally, Coach Smith said, Mokhtar, look at me. Look me in the eye. Is everything okay? And Mokhtar hesitated in silence. After a few moments, he finally spoke and said, Coach, in my culture, it's considered a sign of disrespect to look someone in the eye. The coach let it drop. The next day, the assistant coach, Guthridge, didn't show up for practice. He didn't show up the next day or the next day or the next day after that. In fact, Coach Guthridge missed an entire week of practice and nobody knew why until Mokhtar's mother called him from Senegal. This is what she said. Son, there is a man in my house claiming to be one of your basketball coaches. Is that possible? that one of your coaches has come to my house in Senegal. He says, Coach Smith sent him here so that they can learn about your culture. Is it possible that this really is one of your coaches? You see, Coach came near. Coach went all the way to Senegal so that he could know his player. Friends, Jesus has come much further than from Senegal. He stepped from the throne of heaven into this broken down world and took on flesh so that we might be able to look God in the eye, that we might know him, that we might know his glory and see him. He not only dignifies humanity by taking on our flesh, he understands it from the inside. He knows all about our weakness and our hurt and our betrayal. Jesus even knows from that awful day of the crucifixion what it feels like to bear the weight of guilt. Jesus knows it. And yet he was willing in his glory to 
bear that suffering, to drain the dregs of God's wrath dry so that we might be given life. We might be given freedom from our sin that we might be able to behold him in his glory, in his presence. That's what Christmas is about, friends. It's about the word made flesh that we might behold his glory to truly see God and to know him, having been reconciled to him through the blood of the cross. There's a straight line that runs through the story of the Bible. There's a straight line from the manger in Bethlehem to the cross, to the resurrection where Jesus triumphed over our sin and our death and straight line continues to the ascension where Jesus, this same Jesus who took on flesh, now sits on the throne and he rules over all. He rules and he overrules and he knows your name. He loves you. Let's commit to seek him this Advent that we might see him as he truly is. Let's pray. Lord, what a tremendous truth that you took on flesh so that we might behold your glory, that we might not be kept away from your presence, but drawn in and invited into your presence through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, we, we're amazed that you would love us like that, that you would come after us, pursue us, and give us life at the cost of your own life. And so, Lord, as we hear your word this morning and as we prepare to come to your table, give us new spiritual eyes that we might behold your glory and see you as you are, full of steadfast love and faithfulness, grace and truth given to us, your people. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.